You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. You know, when I got out of the hospital, they put me on this uh, a new heart medicine, and it's so weird. I looked at the side effects because it's giving me the weirdest dreams. Now, I never had a whole bunch of dreams, but now I'm getting like two or three a night, and it's driving me crazy because people show up that I'm friends with on Facebook who I never messed met I'm in, I'm in my, my neighborhood growing up and it's just crazy so I have to go out there and uh, if any of you people are on Metropolol look it up because you might not want to get on that drug anyway we have a great show today we have a, a very talented guy you know great writer songwriter he's won a Grammy he's just he's all over there he's had a great career and my guest is Dave Perner how you doing Dave good what's going on man not much man I was uh just a fan of your work, you know. It's it's good to talk to you. You've you know you've had lasting power, and in this day and age, the way the music industry changes, there's not a lot of people with lasting power anymore. I I heard you started off as a drummer. What made you want to get into the drums? Uh, I don't know. I was just I was one of those kids that was charming on my mom's pots of band, but make a drum set out of Quaker oats boxes, you know, anything. I just I was banging and hitting on things, and then. Like, I remember my parents would, uh, they'd get me out of bed at night whenever Buddy Rich was on the Johnny Carson show. So they must have at least knew that I just was delighting in it. And uh, I really wanted a hi-hat, so finally I got a toy drum set when I was a very, very little kid, and it didn't have a hi-hat, because they don't sell those for uh, toy drum sets. So... You're uh, cutting out. Are you are you, on the, are you close to the phone? Uh, oh, there you go. No, you cut out for a second. So you, you start playing now. Now you you form a, when you started to play in high school. You're trying to get bands together. Did you did you ever think you'd become a front man? Uh, I think secretly I I always wanted to be the the, the front man. I think, um, but I I knew that there was different ways of getting there, I suppose. I mean, playing the drums really helps understand the, the rudiments of just how music fits together, you know. And, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, there was like a songwriter that was inside of me that was trying to get out, and a, and a singer, and a, and a show-off. But uh, the guys that get all the credit are the guys that show off on their guitars. Now, who were some of your influences when you were younger? Who were when and you were in a teenage? What kind of music were you listening to? Uh, well, I started out like most people. I suppose I don't know how most people start out anymore. Come to think of it, but just listening to AM radio, you know. And I was into jazz. I was a trumpet player when I was a kid, so I was listening to like Weather Report and um, just odd. Return to Forever, Maynard Ferguson, and Chuck Mangione, and then I discovered Miles Davis, which was a bit of a revelation. But at the same time, you know, the guy in the band sitting next to me, he brought me his brother's copy of uh, Are You Experienced, Jimi Hendrix, and that sort of changed my paradigm. At that point, I knew that I wanted to switch the guitar. But, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of hard rock, you know. I listened to, I was into Kiss for a while. I was into Black Sabbath. I was 
listening to uh, Stevie Wonder and Peter Frampton and stuff like that, I guess. Now, were you? did you ever, in those early days, think of pursuing the jazz road because you were such you liked it or was it you know at one point before Jimi Hendrix before you heard that did, were you considering ever following jazz yeah, I, mean, I was listening to Jimi Hendrix and When did you get your... Yeah, you're cutting out a little bit on me, but uh, we're having a little connection. Can you hear hear me okay? Is this better? Yeah, that's much better. Hey, now I can't hear you very well, but we'll try. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah, it's just a little faint. Okay, well, I talk loud, so we're all good. Uh... So, when did you put your first band together? Uh, high school, probably 19 fucking, excuse me, 1980, maybe. Maybe 79, probably 80. We were called the S-C-H-I-T-Z's. I don't know if, uh, what kind of broadcast we're oh, no, doing you, you, here, you, you can, we were the shit. You can curse. Okay, yeah, I don't know if I can say that or not. You can, you can. You can say fuck, you can say okay, shit, whatever you want. And it was fun. It was fun to go, we're the shits. But at that point, <laughs> we had all discovered punk rock. So at that point, it was all about the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and the Clash. And, uh, you know, really primitive music that people with a limited amount of talent could play. And, uh, you know, that was the sort of the model when I started writing my own songs they were very very simple songs called like screw 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 or or drive drive you know that was a song about driving you could probably imagine what screw 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 is about (laughs) working on construction right yeah so when did when did soul asylum begin well uh I believe it was the summer between my junior and uh, senior year in high school, one of the guys from the, the shits had left town for the summer, and I met Danny and Carl. They went to a different high school than I did, and we started a trio. We would just each other at uh, like rock shows outside, stuff that underage people could get into. And uh, we got to kind of be friends, and they were dating the girls from my high school. So they were around. And uh, Danny could kind of play. Carl was just figuring it out and uh, going to play drums. Or I did play drums, and that was the trio. And we finally decided on the name Loud Fat Solo Style. We got a drummer, and then we got a deal from the local record label Twin Tone. And at that point, I didn't want to be called out fast rules because I just felt like it was too limiting to what one might expect from us. And uh, 
but yeah, I mean, at the time, it was it was like hardcore punk rock was the thing. So it was whoever could play the fastest and the loudest what kind of wins the contest. And we were pretty loud and pretty fast. I mean, we were holding our own. You know, we had Husker Du and the replacements and all those Minneapolis bands were our, were our uh, contemporaries, if you will, people that were playing around town. And uh, it was a great scene. I mean, I always, I always assume that, you know, people out of high school have a great music scene. And uh, I'm just not sure. I mean, I know that my, I just went to a friend's grad the graduation party and you know they were going to house parties where each other's bands were playing and stuff so I I mean I hope that that's I hope that that's an option for anyone because it sure sort of sort of saved me and gave me a direction and you know before that I was just kind of flunking out of sports and school you know <laughs> so so you're the band forms. Now, how do you come up with the name Soul Asylum? Uh, well, we were desperately trying to change the name because now we had a recording project going. Or we had a record we were working on. And uh, I just kept brainstorming. And I finally had written a poem, believe it or not, a poem. And the title of the poem was Soul Asylum. And I thought, uh, what the heck, I'll pitch it to the band. And they bought it. And at that point, we were just trying everything, you know. I'd come with something written on a piece of paper and show it to the band, thinking they'd get all excited and they'd go, you know, thumbs down. So, it, yeah, it's a poem, oddly enough. And uh, it just seemed like two words that sounded like a well, it, it is. It, it is catchy. Now, when you first, I guess it was Twin Tone you signed with, right? Correct. Now, what was your, what did they want to do with you? Did they want to have you still play punk or did they want you to develop different? What was their goal for you guys? Well, there was no direction as far as, I mean, the, the music of the time was very much do it yourself. I mean, no one messed with other anybody else's music. Uh, so they were, you know, Twin Tone was not the kind of label that tried to form artists or tell artists to do something different than they were doing. It's just very indie stuff, and the idea is to sort of catch it when it's raw and catch it when it's as real as, as it can be, not change it. You know? So anyhow. Uh, I was walking across the street one day with Bob Mould, and he said, hey, I want to produce your record. And I said, what does that mean? Right. I really didn't understand what that meant. But, you know, I think that having Bob come in with us and the label trusting Bob, and Bob being of a band that was never on Twin Tone, it's, I think it was a good enough uh, uh system of checks and balances. I mean, who's going to do at that time was just ferocious. So it was very much, uh, you know, it was punk rock times and then we were trying to make really aggressive music. And, you know, some of that record, the first record anyways, is probably more diverse than what a lot of the bands were doing. I mean, some bands are just playing every single song was a million miles. 
mean, you could bear, which really works. I mean, it's it's like going, it's like if you're at a disco, and one song flows into the other, and they keep this BPMs thing happening, where people can continue to dance. I mean, these bands have come out, they play for an hour, and it just be a blur of just you know people dancing violently, and it never really stopping, and it just it was something else. I mean, I'm sure there's someone still doing that somewhere. Well, you're with Twin Tone, and you recorded three albums with them. How did you make the move to A&M? Uh, Twin Tone and A&M decided to do some sort of a merge thing, and it was, we were kind of the, the, the band that they were doing it around. And we like that idea because we still got to keep the indie thing alive as far as whatever that meant, our association with being on an independent label. And, uh, you know, having a budget and the this, the reach, I guess, of, of a major label. Um, so it was comforting in the way that some of the people that we relied on at Twin Tone were coming. And, uh, you know, the first thing that happened, or, you know, I was like, let's make a record. And I was like, well, I want to work with the guy, Ramon's record, records. And uh, how about that guy in, in the Patti Smith band? Because I love, I also thought Lenny K was cool. And they said, sure. And I was like, no kidding. So it was really the first time we'd ever had a budget to make a record. And just having that kind of access is, is pretty cool. So there I am. I'm, now suddenly I'm in New York with producers and engineers that I, have, that I really admire. And uh, so it was a pretty smooth transition, you know. The most, probably the weirdest part was just being in California a lot and being in New York City a lot. Uh, and that's because that's where the labels wanted the artists. And, uh, and there's just more studios, there's more choices for, you know, what kind of room you need, gear you need. And most of the people in the industry are living in one place or the other. So, yes, it's kind of true that there's not a studio in Minneapolis that can keep up with some of those studios. And there's a, you know, there's a dozen world-class studios every few miles. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, you know, that part was the transition from the little city to the big city. And being in New York all the time, which is, which is cool. It's just very expensive, but, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, so the, uh, the, now the first two albums didn't sell real great for A&M, right? Yes, I would say that for uh, a major label, they did not sell very well. So, so where does that leave you as a band? I mean, you got to work with these great people. You came in touted. Was it disappointing for you? Yeah, I mean, they didn't have a department for us, so like the expressions like alternative and those kind of expressions had not been made up yet. 
somewhere between college radio and they had no idea what to do with us because there just wasn't that much out there at the time so people didn't know what to do once they brought sort of a punk rock band into their you know it was always kind of complicated see that you know we had a following by then we had a we had been to Germany and we'd been to you know, we've been around, so we had a we had our own fan base. I guess that's right, fan base. That's what that's called. Um, so there, you know, there was obviously something to it as far as they were concerned. Um, but yeah, it was frustrating because they just didn't know which way to put us. Do they put us with the metal bands? Do they put us where? where do they? What? They don't have people working there that understand what the music is. And, you know, not a lot of outlets for it. Now, you ended up with Columbia. How did they sign you? What kind of band did they bring you on as? Hold on a second. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, we ended up at Columbia. What, what was the question? What kind of band did they sign you as? Because, you know, you said before... You... Oh, well... By that time, they... Columbia was very aware of the fact that we were not to be fucked with, if you will. Like, you don't take a DIY band and try to tell them what to do because they're at least that smart. Um, so, they, by, by now, uh, things, like, uh, things like Nirvana were happening. By now, aggressive bands were making it onto major labels and Columbia needed theirs, you know, because they didn't have one, so that would have been us, and, uh, yeah, so they were, they were ready for a rock band, they were ready for an alternative band, whatever it is you want to call us, and, uh, they needed to have one, because I guess every label needs a token something, you know, right. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, it, all, it, was, it was pretty smooth as far as them just going okay now you do your thing and we'll, we're, we're ready to put you know our support behind it when you recorded Graves Dance Grave Dancers Union did you expect it to blow up it blow blow up the way it did uh well no I mean of course not I mean I just uh, it was a it was very uh I was very immersed in the record I couldn't really you know tell night from day and I it was kind of it was finished and I was looking for a manager I guess and the manager heard the first three songs and he went oh I, I definitely want to manage this band and I that was the first time somebody reacted in a way I was like wow he really likes that <laughs> you know <laughs> so I was just kind of not you know I wasn't really playing it for people I was just kind of finishing up tight ends and, uh, you know, just kind of wondering what was going to happen next. I had shopped the record myself in New York, and they rarely got as far as Runaway Train was on the demo tape. Um, but I did. I went to, like, six or seven labels, and they're like, oh, you're going to re- re- you're gonna re- 
making an acoustic record because that was just how we decided to cut the demo. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we kind of put a bunch of we supercharged it when we recorded the record and made it a rock record. Well, the demo was kind of folky. Now, Runaway Train became a huge hit. How long did that take you to write? Was that one of those? Because a lot of times, I talk to a lot of people who say, you know, sometimes they'll write a song within 20 minutes. Sometimes it'll take them a few days. What was, where did Runaway Train come from? I know, it's very crazy. Uh, yeah, I was just talking about that. Some songs, they just, you sit down, you write the whole fucking thing, and other songs I work on for 10 years, and I'm, I got, I got one of each right now. I just wrote one in one sitting. And I'm trying to finish one that I've been working on for 10 years, and it seems impossible for me. I just, I don't know. I can't figure it out. But uh, that uh, Runaway Train was a melody that I had in my head for a very long time, and it, it had different lyrics. And I thought that the lyrics could be better. So I sort of had this tune going in my head with these lyrics that I was kind of so-so on. And then it just sort of, sort of turned, it sort of came together. I had a friend I was calling up in the middle of the night because I was experiencing some pretty lousy depression. And uh, it kind of sort of just wrote it down one day. It really strike me as a particular memory other than it was a melody waiting for words. And they just kind of sort of came out of me one day probably one night well you record that and then you do the video and the video you know was very influential it had a lot of you know it's found a lot of people who were missing it's been remade um did you sense did you have any input on that video did you know where you wanted to go with it well you get what you do is you go um have lunch or dinner with potential directors that's what you did which is probably just such a long gone thing we were just talking about that yesterday MEV was this behemoth and then it just sort of vanished depending on your perspective but uh, yeah I mean the record company would spend money so I could have dinner with a director and see if we had a good idea between each other and uh In order to pick the directors we wanted to meet, uh, you'd get a you'd get a pile of VHS tapes, you know, and have to sort of look through their work. And this guy, I don't think had done Tony K. As far as I know, had not done a music video. So his reel was it was like commercials and like weird short films and like stuff like that. And I, I just thought his his eye was amazing. You know, I was like, wow, this is very visually stunning so so i get a meeting with tony k and he says milk cartons and i say what and he goes milk cartons and he says you know how they put kids missing kids on milk cartons which i he's british so i didn't i don't know if they if he knew that from growing up i, I but i certainly remember kids on milk cartons so anyhow he goes into well let's let's put these kids and he was making a literal uh he was just using the word runaway really and and 
making a transition to these are these are kids and then he was like we're gonna use real kids in the video and i just i just went that is brilliant as tony would say and that was kind of you know that was the the seed of the video it was really his concept and i loved it so we were you know we were pretty pretty tight working on it and i was doing a lot of uh learning about the whole situation i mean they put this guy named ernie from the center for missing and exploited children on the job and uh i don't know if on the job sounds right but we we i had to consult and learn what the process of with trying to find kids because we had to you know we couldn't just use pictures of anyone we had to use pictures of uh who they thought were the best candidates and uh you know that that turned into i was around when polly Kloss was kidnapped and uh, i'd end up kind of being more involved in some of these things and talking about it a lot and it's uh it's really something i mean the association of of this probably that a lot of people can think of and uh, the song are somewhat of a just a literal use of the word runaway the song is not per se about runaway children I guess is the point now that video got so much attention and you guys are getting attention how is your life changing because as you said MTV it used to be MTV if you saw a video everyone saw it and you knew who the person was it's like now I, I mean I don't watch Jersey Shore or any of that crap but how was your life changing when you started selling, you know, moving a lot of product and your face was everywhere? How did it change my general state of being? What you mean? Well, yeah, I mean, did, were you were you getting cocky because everyone saw you? Or what, what were you doing? I was touring constantly. I was, you know, the thing that annoyed me was the part that was not music. So, you know, I mean, you find yourself doing a lot of photo shoots and sort of thinking, man, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I don't, I don't want to be a model. What the fuck? Um, so things like that are just kind of annoying, but you kind of call it the dirty work and you just do it. Um, but it does keep you busy. You're flying all over the place doing promotion and doing radio stuff and playing tons and tons of gigs. And also, you know, getting like Tokyo and Australia and places that you know the band maybe hadn't been previously so um, it's just extremely busy and uh, you sort of have to take it as it comes but I didn't really get into it you know <laughs> I just kind of did it reluctantly but uh, yeah the playing part was 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 good you know well as you're on the road and you know and doing the whirlwind, were you starting to write your next album? Did you know that you had to do another album? I mean, that's just the way it works. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm saying, I think, like, um, today, today, and uh, I just have to keep doing it, or else I, I, I get rusty or something. I get out of the habit. So, yeah, I, I, 
I start writing the next record the second the last one is released. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't thinking, oh, God, which I probably should have been thinking, oh, God, I got to follow this up with another hit record. But I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking, oh, this is my opportunity to really explore, you know, the music and the studio and the, like, see what I can really do to sort of be innovative, I guess. And, uh, you know, that's where you get in the trap. I mean, there it is. They want another runaway train. And I'm like, I already wrote that song. Right. So, you know, it, it wasn't. It wasn't that cool in that sort of way where I'm just like, oh, no. I mean, that was just a song, a whole record of songs that sound like that, you know. So that's a little frustrating. It's still frustrating. It must be. I mean, you know, because you, <laughs> you, you have I ain't to... complaining, but I'm just not, you know, it's just not that kind of a band. I mean, we have to come out and and, and pretty much play loud and hard and that's kind of your relief is the the more acoustic stuff now how, how did you meet Kevin Smith uh god I wish I had a better beginning for this story but I believe it was none other than Harvey Weinstein who I met at a party and he knew that Oh, wait a minute. That's not true. Actually, oh, thank God it's not, because I hate having to start a story out with Harvey Weinstein. We did a song for Clerks, and uh, Kevin was a fan of the band, for lack of a better word, and he asked for a song, and I happen to have a song called uh, Can't Even Tell. And it turned out to be the song that they liked the most from the soundtrack for Clerks, so they made a video of Can't Even Tell. And we played hockey on the roof of the building where the the shop is from Clerks. Um, so basically we went on to the Clerks set and were directed by Kevin playing hockey suicidal against the cast of Clerks. It was a blast. I mean, it was just hilarious. That's how you make a video. It was like, just fun, you know? So, so they used the song, and then, uh, and then, yeah, I ran into Harvey, and he said, Harvey Weinstein, Mr. Weinstein, and he said, oh, Kevin's making a new movie. You should do the, you should score it. And I said, I would love to do that. And I just thought it was a, you know, Hollywood party talk I did not expect a call from his office the next day and uh, and yeah I met with Kevin we hit it off we know each other we knew each other a little bit but uh, you know I of course think he's great and uh, it's just friend and uh, it's very kind of low key thing you know it was a Anyways, he was sort of into, the idea was not to spend as much money as possible. It was a little not Hollywood. It was more, Kevin works better on a smaller budget 
did the whole soundtrack in this guy's garage. He plays guitar for Bonnie Raitt. And it was fun. I played all the instruments, and Kevin stopped by every now and then, and then putting it, setting it into the into the movie was just, like, really cool. Like, he'd make a suggestion, and I'd go, you're the director. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I got the music here. You put it where you want, and, you know, really, it's your baby, Kevin, but it certainly was a thrill to be part of that. And playing the picture is something that I really like, so a lot of the music was sort of composed as I was watching the movie. Okay. So I probably watched Chasing Amy 500 times. Right. Now, you also play for the president. How does that come apart? I mean, you think about it. How does that happen? I mean, you know, you guys started off as a punk rock band in Minnesota. Now you're playing for the president. How did that even come about? Well, oddly, you don't know a lot of these things for sure. But uh, my understanding is that it somehow came through Chelsea. Chelsea was like, Dad, check this band out, or something to that effect. Or he said, or Hillary said, who do you think we should have play at this signing of a youth? It was a youth employment bill that was being passed, so they wanted it to have a young angle to it, and that was us, apparently. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, there we were playing on the White House lawn playing Black Gold and Without a Trace and playing songs that I thought were pretty politically charged. So I, I started to feel like, man, this is a good audience for these songs. I'm, I'm, I'm getting somewhere with this music. I mean, these are the dudes, and I say dudes because there's a lot of suits there um, that need to hear this. You know, So at, at that point, I felt pretty like I was in a, a pretty influential position, I suppose. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he was so great. We came, we got to hang out in the Oval Office, and I got to make jokes about mowing his lawn because I mowed lawns at the time, or I had a job mowing lawns for like 15 years. And I asked him if he'd come up and play saxophone, and he said, no, I'll play the president. You play the music. I mean, he's a very... <laughs> one of those people persons you know you meet a few of these people like talk show hosts and they're very they're very uh forthcoming and, and generous in their ability to be able to make someone feel comfortable and uh so yeah i think there was three we played at the inaugural and at his when his term finished he came to minneapolis to do a kind of a thanks to his supporters thing and he asked us to play again and he asked Monica and I gave it to him and I thought that was like so yeah you know Bill Clinton man nice guy see that's cool now, now also you know being from Minnesota what was it like when uh, Stinson joined the band I mean you know I'm sure their replacements were God how did that come about When down the road in your career, when Tommy uh, Stinson joined your band, yeah, how did that come about? Because I mean, being from Minnesota, that must have been a you know a big compliment to you. Yeah, I mean, Tommy was in uh, high school 
when I was in high school. So I knew Tommy through. Yeah, I thought he dated my sister. Let's just put it that way. He later told me that he didn't really date my sister, but I just, someone told me that. Anyhow. So, you know, he kind of, he really came to the rescue. I mean, I, I, gotta, I gotta be honest. I mean, Carl had died, and I did not want to. I really couldn't figure out if psilocybin should continue without Carl Mueller, because there's really only me, Dan, and Carl who started the band. And uh, Tommy came forward. Well, I'll sub. I gotta figure out what to do next. And uh, that was a bit of a godsend. I was like, fuck. You know, Carl's ex-wife is, I'm, I'm sorry, not ex-wife, widow. I, can, I, I can't get used to saying that. Carl's widow is good friends with Tommy. You know, er, you know whatever. Everybody loves Tommy. Now, That's a joke. But, uh, but yeah, you know, Tommy said, I'll do it. And we said, great, let's go, you know. And uh, we even felt like, like Carl would have, been okay with that so that that made it easier to sort of move forward and uh man tommy's a blast he's just an incredible musician he's really fun to play with and be around and yeah so well, i just talked to him not that long ago he was in town opening for doing a solo acoustic now you're going to be going on tour again soon Starts very soon. Mm-hmm. How is the road for you now? I mean, you've been on the road for a long time. I know you have, I believe you got a new guitarist a little while ago. What is it like for you going out still on the road? Do you still have fun? I mean, do you, do you I mean, you're, I'm sure you're appreciated, but what's it like for you? As opposed to. Is it. <laughs> Is it, I mean, is it getting taxing on you? Because, you know, you're not, you know, when you're 24, 25, you know, doing a bunch oh, of gigs is a lot easier. Yeah, I'm sorry, you're cutting out a little bit, but I think what you mean is, is touring harder now that I'm not fucking 20 anymore? Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely, you know. Um, it's, uh, it's still fun. I mean, yeah, I mean, listen to me, I'm like, while I'm talking about it. But uh, travel sucks, and and I gotta be honest with you, we do a lot of fly-in dates, and ever since nine eleven, it just really, really, really sucks. And that's something that I don't know only happens a lifetime. But God, it just it made flying to gigs miserable, and it still is. So, you know, when we get a bus, which is, we, we sort of have to go on a long tour to get a bus. Um, it's pretty similar to what it's always been like. Um, we used to get the back lounge to play cards and stuff, and now uh, Michael gets the back lounge because Michael is a big man. Um, but the rest of it is pretty similar. I tend to, I can't really sleep at night after the gig. I used to stay up and play cards. Now I just stay up and do a lot of drawing and stuff on the bus and try to keep myself. Well, I try to pose. But, uh, you know, 
there's a little more options with you can watch a movie or I buy fucking stupid trucks truck stops just literally for um so you know I go through the three ninety nine bin and I find <laughs> airplane and I put it on and I either get you know vetoed or what's like oh my god I forgot how funny this movie is or whatever but uh you know people will file out they'll go to bed I I just I think that's left over from like when I had uh, sleepover. I, I didn't want to fall asleep first because I thought somebody might prank me in my sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I pretty much wait for everyone else to go to bed. No. And then I, I uh, you know, I, I go to bed or I make a drawing or I do a stupid video project or something crazy. I'm a night owl anyways, which leaves a lot of time for uh, not getting up in the morning. Right. And, uh, you know, but I, I I love sleeping on a moving vehicle. It really feels, when you're sleeping on a bus for eight, moving the whole time, I feel like I'm multitasking. And that part, I, I really feel like I'm getting a lot done. <laughs> I'm sleeping. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a productive so, sleep. You have a productive sleep. Change. Now, what's the future of the band? Are, are you going to plan to record again? What's what's going on? Well, we have a completed record, and I'm just looking at the uh, list of 22 songs that we're trying to, you know, whittle down to 12, and seems like it's going pretty good as far as everybody trying to agree on which 11 or 12 songs. But it's, it's pretty much finished. Once we pick the 11 songs, I'll go in and fix a couple more things. And uh, I'm working on a book, believe it or not. It's a lyric book. It's just a book of my lyrics. And, uh, I mean, the band is in as good a shape as ever. I mean, it's just so much, for lack of a better expression, being... Being very, very young and not knowing what you're doing and, and making music that people are actually paying for, it's really swinging in the dark a lot. Like, you don't know you don't know what you're doing, you know? So a lot of that has changed. A lot of that is like, I don't need a huge budget and a bunch of experts on microphones to pay to come to the studio to make sure that we don't screw it up. I mean, you just sort of learn the trade, you know what I mean? So a lot of that stuff, I mean, with the band and with the everything, everybody has learned the basic rudiments of music in a way that it's much more fun. You're not, you're not struggling with why doesn't it sound right because you can't, you haven't figured out how to tune a guitar yet. Or just weird little things like eventually you just figure out. But it, the only way you can figure it out is if, you know, you're on stage and the shit hits the fan and, and you go, I'm never doing that again. So whatever just happened there, I never want that to happen again. And then you go about learning how to prevent that from ever happening again, which is the tricks and the tools of the trade, you know? So... A lot of those things are resolved, and everybody knows what needs to happen and what needs.
needs to be done and that is completely different than it was 30 years ago you know i mean thank god we i have learned some experience now i mean it's not useful for anything else but it certainly is for this now for the album do you all have a say in what songs are going to go on it because you said you have 22 you got to whittle it down do you really is it a voting system or how do you decide what's going to go on it it is and i am the president okay I have veto power, but I'm still waiting to see if everyone is going to agree on 11 songs. And if they all agree on 11 songs, I might have to switch one out or not. And this is the first time this has ever happened. And Michael Bland is pretty much the what, what I would call the musical director, which is an expression that I had never heard before. And when Michael joined the band, he was coming from a lot of way more professional situations, if you will. You know, he was getting offers to play with Madonna. He had played with Prince for years, blah, blah, blah. He'd seen all this other kind of stuff that where he said, oh, Dave, when you're in a band, it's more like you're in a gang or something. You know, and for him, it's like a, it's like a profession. So he doesn't have any problem being really organized. And so he has conducted this survey of the other three people and uh, also requested a sequence. So people are trying to work out the sequence of the record, which for me is probably the hardest thing to do. Besides making a set list, which Michael does that too. And I love it because I get a little surprised every night. I'm like, oh, Michael switched up the set list. But at the same time, I would agonize over it basically for way too long. And he thinks about tempos and keys, signatures, and all that stuff comes to him very naturally. So they're trying to figure it out, and I'm just kind of going to have the final say, I suppose. And, you know, really trying to decide if I care what my manager thinks, you know, that sort of thing. Now, will you play any of the new songs on the tour? Uh, we are playing a couple of them, and yes, we will probably pay, be paid. I don't know. We'll be playing more of them than we have, but, you know, like, uh, it's a limited amount of time on stage, and sometimes you got to play something that somebody recognizes. I mean, it'd be great if I didn't care, but I guess I do. I got that old that old cliche of people coming to the show and going, oh, we drove 800 miles to get here, and you didn't play Runaway Train. And I was like, that sucks. So <laughs> I'm like, ah, fuck it. I'll just play Runaway Train. And where do you... you know, it takes takes me four minutes. It's not that big of a deal. Where do you guys play that? Where do you play that in the set? Is there a set position that you play Runaway Train? Well, yeah, you got to put it kind of late in the set. You know what I mean? Because if there's people there that are just there to hear that song. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I, I want to thank you for coming, spending the time today, Dave. Uh, the tour starts soon. People, the website is Soul Asylum. 
com. So go check out their music. Go buy their music. Go to Wikipedia. It lists all their albums. And uh, good luck on the tour, man. Thanks, man. Thanks for your time. It was fun. No problem. You have a good night. Have a great afternoon. Great. Thanks. Bye.